I love that song. Uh, if you could see me, I do a sweet ass uh, drum solo whenever that first drum kit comes on. Yep, it's not it's embarrassing at all. Pretty cool, not at all. Yeah. Uh, I'm Mitch. I'm Dylan. <laughs> I'm Dylan. And I'm Mitch. And this is the greatest this podcast, podcast in, in history. history. Um, I just completely embarrassed myself by introducing myself as Mitch. Yeah. That's rough. That's um, the worst thing in the world. It is. Uh, <laughs> so today we are talking about. Uh, the concept of inevitability uh, and how that relates to historic historic work, uh, historical thinking. Uh, we're going to look at two specific things within this, under this construct: uh, the Vietnam War and World War One, and just the concept of ine- the inevitability of war. We also might take a short jaunt into Civil War territory, yep. uh, which we also covered last week. Uh, but first up, uh, I guess time-wise, we why not just go with World War One? Sure. Um, so I guess I guess before we jump into that, um, we're gonna like the idea of inevitability in war, um, and just in it, when writing history. So oftentimes, when people like read or write history, I like events that have happened can seem in- inevitable. Exactly. Like when you trace the progression of how they came to be, you're like, okay, this makes sense. This always had to. This always would have taken place no matter what. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a bad con- that's a bad way to think about history. Absolutely. Um, I mean, hindsight is is twenty twenty. They say, mm-hmm. and it's so easy to look back on things and say, "Of course, they knew that that was coming. Of course, this was going to happen." Uh, but when you really think about it, if you know, it, it's kind of easiest to look at it in war. Sometimes, if you think, okay, so if this this up. Um, of course, this one side won. How could they not have won the war? But had historical events turned out to be differently, then you'd be saying, well, of course, the other side won the war. How could they not have won the war? Okay. So inevitability is a really a tough and dangerous, dangerous trap. Yeah. yeah, it's a dangerous trap for historians to fall into. Uh, and you see this a lot around uh, World War I in Vietnam, where people are often, when they write about the, the years uh, before World War I, it often comes off as like people saying that World War One was inevitable and it had to happen, and that's yeah. not the case at all. Yeah, and it's not the case for any historical event. If you look at everything, there is there's a infinite chances that something different could have happened and it could have gone off into another space. Yeah. Now on the flip side of the coin, you shouldn't be writing about what those other things could have done if you want to be truly historical. Yeah. Counterfactual arguments are often. It can make I think it can make really fun. Um, yeah. And interesting. Yeah. Um, some, some good historical some historians have written like you know what if the Confederacy had won the war. There's some like interesting kind of quote unquote fun uh, reads about some yeah. things like that. <laughs> if you're a nerd, <laughs> uh, it also makes great blog posts. If you yeah. you know you want to you know read something like theblowhard.com, www.theblowhard.com, or shout out Mitch, or, or even blog. Or uh, www.mitchlore.com is also great. Uh, <laughs> We're just plugging our own blogs now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, of course, like counterfactual, a historical arguments um, you don't want to go into, but you also don't want to write as if the event that you're talking about was bound to happen and destined to happen in exactly the same way um, that you're that it it did happen. It's like yeah. the manifest destiny, like a mistake. Yeah. Like the idea that uh, the United States was meant to be where its current borders are today, and that somehow is like our God-given right. Like yeah. you, that's a that's just bad historical writing. And that's one reason that um, 
and looking at like Vietnam War and World War One are great yeah, topics to use for discussing kind of the inevitability of historical events because they in themselves were such complicated and complex events exactly. uh, with you know tons of different causes and reasons as to how and why they happened. That you know it's it's a really good launching off point for this kind of discussion. Exactly, and just uh, I guess. Uh caveat to all this, it is incredibly hard to write um, history without making it seem like it was inevitable just because you're building an argument and you're usually telling things chronologically. Yeah. And so you're just building facts on top of facts on top of facts and oftentimes that reads as if something was inevitable. So if you don't actively try to work against that, uh, you're, it can often seem to the average reader as if something was bound to happen. Yeah. And, and one last thing is it's always interesting um, if you ever like try and place yourself in a historical time period, to realize you really would not have any idea oh, yeah. of what's about to happen. Exactly, none at all. Yeah, and that's I guess we'll bring that, keep that in mind when we talk about World War One. Yeah, um, and I guess the book, the main book we'll be referencing here is Sleepwalkers, um, which is a fantastic look at World War One. I'm trying to remember the. It's by Sir Christopher Clark. Yeah, um, he's a fa- he's a pretty famous um, author. He's written a lot about. Um, World War One, and then earlier as well in uh, Europe. Yeah, he, he really, um, his focus typically is on Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, even though he's, he's an Australian-born professor of history at Cambridge University, and he's been knighted in response to his, his work with uh, historical Germany, specifically like in the late 1800s, as well as his book Sleepwalkers, which deals with World War One, And he was knighted because of his uh, contribution to Anglo-German relations. Mm-hmm. And you'll definitely be able to see that in his book, Sleepwalkers, if you were to choose to pick it up, uh, because he really tries to take a more complex look at World War One. And I think it's there's, there's a tendency to, if you're going to write a, his, a history about certain wars, write it from certain perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunately kind of just something that inevitably happened. <laughs> that was the wrong word. To, um, it's, it's really difficult not to do, and uh, um, Christopher Clark really tries to take his work and tell it from every kind of different perspective yes. of these powers on the eve of World War One mm-hmm. and moving into it. Of course, he still does fall into a trap of blaming it on somebody. Yeah, um, but he makes a pretty convincing argument when he does that. Yeah. Um, so it's actually interesting. The name Sleepwalkers uh, does tie into our topic for today because his. One of his main theses is that World War II wasn't really uh, about acts of like aggression by one particular country, but instead that like Europe as a whole was kind of just sleepwalking into the conflict of World War One and not really realizing where their actions, like the what the consequences of their actions could be. Yeah. They were his argument that they the main powers like Germany, England, all these other countries were kind of just like doing what they normally done and not really thinking into the future what their consequences of their actions could be. And um, this created the, a milieu in which World War I could happen. And he also, his other main argument is that World War I was not inevitable. Yeah. He takes it uh, very much, puts very much effort into explaining the places where decisions were made that led um, to World War I, but saying that like there were still chances for World War I to not happen very, up until the very, very last second yeah. when it actually finally the first shots were fired. Exactly. Because um, with something like World War One, 
historians typically just have a list of causes of World mm-hmm. War One. They talk about things yeah. like imperialism, about yeah. nationalism. If you remember high school history at all, this will be familiar. Yeah, all the isms that were popping up in this period. Yeah. Uh, Clark takes a different approach and kind of says, it ties into his sleepwalking thesis that these ideas of nationalism and imperialism, all these things did have an impact on all these leaders and the people living, just regular people in Europe at this time, but it had an impact on them, but only to the extent that it kind of shaped their conscious decisions. So they were still making decisions. They were still exactly. aware of what they were doing. But the sleepwalking stems from these, these kinds of like seeds of these ideas that were playing in their heads that kind of shaped how they made their decisions. So, exactly. So they weren't, like, for example, like, if you're talking about, like, Kaiser Wilhelm, he wasn't, when he was making decisions about things, he wasn't actively being like, I am a nationalist person, I am thinking as a nationalist does, like, I believe in nationalism. That's not really, but he knew, like, the writings of nationalists, yeah. and he was aware of those kind of thoughts, and they affected how he thought, but it, it was never, like, an explicit kind of thing for these leaders at the time. Yeah. Um, and so this kind of is shaped out in his, he kind of talks about how he's, while a lot of historians ask why the war happened, he's trying to figure out how the war happened. And inherently, in looking at how the war got started, you'll be able to answer kind of why it happened. Um, he kind of talks about some of the pitfalls of asking why exactly. something happened, like any war. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest things is that at just asking why makes you, like I said, stack a bunch of causes into one category of why the war happened, and then it just seems inevitable. It just kind of tips exactly. the scales yeah. in this in this area. Yeah, once you start asking the question not of how something came to be, but why something came to be, you automatically presume that something had to have happened. Yeah. Uh, that's something that, yeah, not, I don't know if I'm phrasing that right, um, but like that's something will have happened in whatever like future you're talking about. Yeah. And that's a bad way to start history. And as he says specifically about World War I, uh, he writes that asking why is a problem because if you had asked someone at the time if they thought war was likely, even like two days before they started, they would have said it wasn't likely. Like, people weren't thinking that World War I was going to happen. It was very, like, quote-unquote peaceful at the time. No one thought that war was going to happen, and it completely disrupted their lives. So thinking about it as an inevitability is a huge mistake. Yeah. And, I mean, someone, like I said, people thought that the war, that war would be less likely to happen. Because mm-hmm. uh, he, he talk, mentioned someone who was in the British Foreign Ministry who said that he had never seen international waters so peaceful. People thought that a lot of these kind of isms that were developing at the time were part of this great modern world that would allow them to to kind of go throughout uh, the future peacefully, or if not peacefully, it would be kind of if the, if war did break out, it would be done in a kind of a restrained or constrained manner uh, and very quickly finished. Exactly. I mean, and keep in mind, uh, as we talked about with our Dreyfus episode. Uh, the 20th century had just started. It's been like a, centennials are always like big periods uh, in time and for human history. You always have like millennialism. I don't know that that's the right word, but like there's lots of uh, like philosophical things always uh, and religious like happenings always tend to go around like uh, turns of centuries. As in, this will be the next modern century. Yeah. This will be the new thing. Same thing happened in 2000. Like Y two K, you'll think the world was end. Yeah. All these like these thoughts always come back and repeat uh, every hundred years. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, but no, we're living in a brand new golden age, aren't we? Uh, yeah, it's one. It's uh, it's so good. Yeah. Fifteen years. Uh, we all we just passed the hundredth anniversary of World War One. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's good. It quite hasn't happened again. Yeah. We'll see and, if we get World War Three. Yeah. Well, it's actually kind of. Uh, this is a little bit of a side point, but it's interesting if you think about where they were looking back 100 years ago was the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the kind of uh, beginning of the, the concert of Europe, where Europe kind of entered into a what was then a kind of unprecedented period of peace, where for a few decades, none of the major powers of Europe were at war with each other. Yeah. Any wars were done by like tiny European powers, and so that was something that they'd never seen before, and that was there 100 years ago. They were on the 100th anniversary of that, so they were probably thinking, you know, this is going to be a, another great concert of Europe, where all the, the yep. power is balanced in, in Europe. But then it didn't. Yeah. Uh, and World War One broke out. Yeah. So here's another important thing to talk about um, with this why, the why versus how way of looking at history, with how, and this is coming from Sleepwalkers, um, the th- argument is that it gives the decision makers of the time agency. So uh, people are making active decisions. They're not being, and we talked about this a little bit before, but they're not being strictly just controlled. Like the, the quote from the book is, they walked towards danger in watchful, calculated steps. So these people were making active decisions that were leading them towards danger. They weren't just somehow like following in the slipstream of history, like being pulled forward by whatever, like outs- forces outside of humanity. Yeah. It's a much less like Marxist look at history where, you know, the tides of labor would have somehow mysteriously brought us forward. Yeah. Um, and another danger of kind of asking why something happened was that that inevitably, inevitably leads to placing blame exactly. on either a yeah. person or a country. Um, and I think a lot of what Clark tries to do is that he doesn't try to place blame on anyone, although he kind of does on Serbia yeah, he does. in his work. It comes out... <laughs> Pretty anti-Serbian, but. but it's more of a. Um, it's but his kind of aim is more of a vindication of Germany and Austria-Hungary, who have typically gotten the the brunt yeah. of the blame, um, and especially with the Treaty of Versailles, which explicitly blames yeah, Germany exactly. for starting the war and created World War Two. <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, which was just fantastic. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, his his main one of his main goals. I mean, it's not an explicitly stated goal of the book, but he is trying to vindicate Germany and Austria-Hungary. Yeah. So I guess what we could do now is just look at some of the uh, places in World War One, like the events leading up to World War One, where just to show like some events that happened that meant that like shows just how not inevitable World War One was. Yeah. And so a key thing to keep in mind at this point is that a lot of leaders at this time they're still related. We still have these old dynasties leading a lot of countries, and they had different, varied, varying amounts of power. But the leader of Austria-Hungary uh, was related uh, to the King of England, was related to the Tsar of Russia. These guys were all interrelated at the time, and they all talked to each other. Like it wasn't through like email, obviously, but they all <laughs> wrote letters because uh, I mean they were family. You know, they didn't necessarily want to go to war, and in fact, we have letters. Uh, from like days before the start of the actual fighting of World War One, with asking each other to pull back and to not do anything anymore. Yeah. So there's this behind the scenes stuff going all the time that doesn't really get talked about. Yeah. And these kind of um, personal connections between the leaders of so many of these important countries uh, also ties into the kind of the web of alliances exactly. that a lot of people um, 
chalk up in there why World War One happened, uh, causes of World War One. Um, it, but it was, you know, this uh, Germany declares war on France, and then Fran- uh, or Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. Russia declares war on Austria-Hungary to defend Serbia, and then it goes on and on and on, kind of like a domino effect, oh. uh, <laughs> if you will. Um, That's going to relate to Vietnam. Yeah, but it wasn't. None of these alliances were as set in stone as as they seem. Exactly. Yeah, the story is often told as if England automatically had to, you know, join France once they were attacked. That's a, that's a very that's like an incredibly poor reading of like international politics. Yeah, and international relations. Absolutely, um, and a lot of these alliances were were fresh. They were brand new. Yeah, um, untested. Yeah, exactly. I mean, France, for example, after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, was literally looking anywhere for alliances, and eventually turned to Russia. But at the same time. Um, at the same period, um, Germany under Bismarck was trying to keep Russia as a friend to them. So that was all happening in the late 1800s, and it wasn't until Bismarck kind of stopped having influence over Germany and he, he died that Germany started turning a cold shoulder towards Russia, and so things kind of started to shift. But all these things were happening just in the decade before World War One happened. So all these alliances that led people to war to defend one another one of those countries weren't really set in stone at all. And a lot of people were speculating that some of the alliances were about to change further exactly. on the eve of World War One. Yeah, England was had a was having a huge like political crisis in the country. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth over whether they should uh, help France at all or change their alliance structure to other countries. Uh, and they were very close to not coming to France's aid uh, after they were attacked. Uh, the parliament at the time was in huge array. There was a lot of political stuff going on in the country as well. Uh, women's suffrage movement was happening, as well as a work, massive worker strikes uh, throughout the United Kingdom. Uh, There's a lot of things that almost kept it from uh, not being in World War One at all. But it's never really talked about. It's just generally considered that England automatically jumped to help France, which, if you think about it, is like on its face like ridiculous. Uh, I guess there's like yeah. no treaty necessarily. Like you can have treaties. But there's nothing like what would stop England from you know pulling out. Like France isn't going to attack England for not being in treaty. It's already under siege by Germany. Like yeah. you can't really do anything about it. And if the Great Britain decides that it's not in its best interests in helping France, which it was pretty close to doing, they could have just not joined the war at all. So it was never inevitable that this uh, structure of uh, treaties that was happening in Europe was going to like come into effect. Yeah. And a lot of um, a lot of the countries at the time ta- at this time, there's a kind of a theme of them overestimating Russia. Yeah. Um, yep. Everyone thinks Russia is like the coolest dude on the block. Pretty much. Um, I, at the the last at the end of the 1800s, there's this kind of an appreciation for Russia as seeing it as kind of like a a European power. But also one that's kind of like savage and backwoodsy because yeah. they had so like so many serfs were like crazy people. Yeah, uh, it's just weird like beards. racial. Yeah, yeah. it's this weird like racial science element to it, and a lot of like a lot of like mysticism behind it because it was like Russia's whole thing is that they're like a mix of East and West, and so and that, that spiritualism was really big in Western Europe at this time. 
Um, and so they often, like Mitch said, like the Russian like savage, and they were going to start like building industry and becoming this huge, powerful country. Yeah. Even though at the time they were still pretty poor and like didn't really have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Great Britain was there, there's kind of a, another cause that people typically say is that Great Britain started an arms race with Germany because Germany started building up their navy, but. If you look at the actual figures of how big Great Britain's navy was and how big Germany's was, it wasn't even, even comparable. Like they were never actually in fear of Germany; they were all, they were kind of more afraid of Russia. And at this time, uh, Karp kind of talks about how a lot of people in Great Britain were thinking that Russia, not Germany, was the greatest rising threat to Britain exactly. power. Yeah. Um, and so they were, um, and so they actually. I think it was Sir Arthur Nicholson. I'm not sure if he was like in the embassy or, or what, but he stated that uh, he didn't see the Anglo-Russian alliance lasting for a lot longer. In which case, if it didn't, if it hadn't, if they had terminated that alliance before World War One started, Great Britain probably would have allied itself with Germany. I mean, it's speculation, but kind of some things point towards that. Yeah, I mean, the, the in the months before. Uh, World War One started. England was uh, traveling back and forth to Russia with diplomats. They had lots of meetings. They weren't really going great. Uh, the English diplomat in Russia was like pretty much crazy. He's like he's, he considered himself pretty much above everybody else and didn't really listen to instructions at all. And it was a really tense. There's really tense political moment between Great Britain and Russia on the eve of World War One, and their alliance pretty much almost fell apart. Yeah. There was, like, last-ditch efforts by a couple of senior politicians to, like, patch it up. That almost didn't happen. Uh, but then once the war started, um, and only once the war started, did that alliance firm up. Uh, there's also, I forget, like, Russia, I'm forgetting the exact point, but, like, Russia started the war almost before there's like, a miscommunication yeah. or something. So the war, like, almost, like, didn't even happen how it actually happened with Russia moving, like, large amounts of forces uh, into Germany before it should have, and like generals going rogue. So there's all kinds of things that happened that uh, you know could have stopped World War One from happening how it did. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, like I said, Russia was about to go um, know, crazy and just start. Yeah, start, start the war a little bit early on their own. They started almost buying into the myth in Europe that they were this rising power. Yeah. Even though there were people in their government who knew that they weren't. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you want to move on to yeah. Vietnam? Yeah. We don't. That's not. We won't get too much into specifics on like other different like inflection points in World War One where things could have changed. Yeah. Other than that, Serbia is a dog and definitely started World War One, <laughs> and they're the worst country. Yeah. I mean, if you, I guess if you, if I had to blame someone, I'd say it was the Black Hand. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> for assassinating Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and there, who was there? The leader of Serbia at the time was like this crazy, like hermit dude. Not a hermit, but he was like, he had a giant beard. He like mumbled all the time and never really talked to anybody and like hid out. Uh, he's a crazy guy. You should look him up. I can't remember his name right now, but he's nuts. Yeah. I mean, it's it's always interesting how. I don't know, kind of the Balkan region, this this tiny little part of Europe uh, that was never no none of the states in it were considered a great power became the the you know center of everyone's attention. Um, 
but it's, it's important to not think of that as particularly painting Europe as a, as a powder keg about yeah, to burst. Exactly. Because uh, it really wasn't like no, that. No, not at all. Yeah, everyone thought it was peaceful and pretty much tranquil and that, like, they knew with, like, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand that, like, something had happened, but no one figured it would go to, it would lead to war. Yeah. Like, exactly. no one thought that. Everyone was like, oh, this is a political event. Keep in mind, at this time, like, anarchists, and there was a lot of violence, political violence happening at the time. This yeah. was, Franz Ferdinand was by far not the first leader to be assassinated or assassination attempts. We had presidents being assassinated by anarchists and other sort of quote-unquote terrorist groups at this time. It was happening all over Europe, too. Yeah. This wasn't like a, oh, outro event. This wasn't a weird event that had happened. This was somewhat part of just like normal news. Like, obviously it was big, but it wasn't like a huge epoch-making like event that happened. Yeah. I mean, it's that's another kind of myth about Europe prior to World War One was that it was a, a, another peaceful concert of Europe, when it really wasn't. Um, Italy, like you were talking about all these assassinations of political leaders, Italy invaded Libya um, really close on the eve of World War One, and it had a lot of similarities to the battles of World War One. Uh, this was actually one of the first, uh, this was the first war to feature airstrikes. Uh, so you see this kind of military um, Modernization, the modern war being kind of seen around the world on the eve of World War One, and that kind of debunks any kind of notion of a you know going from a peaceful uh, birds chirping Europe to a Europe just up in flames. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know it's also kind of interesting if you if you look at civil war on yeah. the on the kind of eve of eve of the civil war. There's a lot of other myths about that saying that are kind of similar to looking at the great powers of Europe. Because um, there's always this kind of idea that, we kind of talked about this in the Dreyfus episode, about how people thought that, you know, Germany, you have this kind of notion that Germany is just this single, singular military-minded power. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, France and Britain were all about being peaceful and whatnot. Um, whereas we said, in reality... You know, if, if someone was to think of some great anti-Semitic event to take place in that time period, it would have taken place in France. They would exactly. Yeah. So there's all these myths about how you see things about ha- um, occurring inevitably, and that also de- um, can translate to America and the Civil War, seeing the two regions, the North and the South, as completely different countries um, yeah. and different That's kind of regions. Really the case. Yeah. Um, I'll just kind of list off some yeah. points really quick. Typically, people say that the North was extremely industrious at the time, the South was all about agriculture. This is not true, really, at all. Uh, both the North and the South were overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly agrarian. Yeah. Um, maybe 30% of Northerners were engaged in industry somehow, uh, but while meanwhile, maybe 10% of Southerners were engaged in industry. A lot of this has to do with the market revolution that had been occurring in the 1830s and 40s that kind of incorporated more people through canals and railroads where people were able to ship their goods. And this kind of translated to a country that was growing closer and more incorporated and involved than splitting apart, in a sense. Um, Another thing is that you, know, you see the, the North as this immigrate, immigration hub where you know, people are flooding into New York City because you had the Irish potato famine and all these things. 
But in actuality, the numbers of immigrants who kind of moved through New York and moved down to the south and down to the Appalachia and out west, it was kind of pretty similar. The only difference in immigration percentages and numbers of immigrants moving to these different regions, uh, the real difference was the types of immigrants. Uh, it was typically Germans and Scandinavians moving in the north who were and generally better educated and had more money to put into the system. Meanwhile, a lot of the Celtic, uh, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh people were moving to the south and Appalachia who were typically poorer and less educated. Uh, another kind of point is that cities. Um, a lot of the major cities were in the north, but you have to really remember what was a major city at this time period. Exactly. Uh, New York was at one million people, roughly, at this, on the eve of the Civil War. The next up was Philadelphia at about 500,000. And then from then on, the largest cities in the north and large cities in the south were roughly equal. Uh, Baltimore and Charleston were the two largest southern cities, both at about 250,000 people. That was the equivalent to Chicago and Pittsburgh, uh, about 250,000 people. So a lot of these things were, if you ever were to talk about differences in the country between the North and the South, there were differences, but they were minor. Exactly. And then the, in the common teaching and common writing of it, what you often get is this like straight up dichotomy of the North and the South. Like mm -hmm. they said, like there are two different countries. And that kind of like, sh that kind of writing about uh, an imagery of it makes the war seem inevitable. Yeah. When you have these two countries who are connected but completely different, then of course they're going to go into war. But the fact was that wasn't really the case. There was that made the you know upper echelons of both countries maybe had big political differences, but outside of that, it wasn't there wasn't really much difference between just a regular you know regular white person, of course, in the north, and a regular white person in the south. Exactly, they were essentially brothers. Yeah, uh, and so there, so you had to keep away from that thinking when thinking about the Civil War in that there was like this huge just straight up split across the Mason-Dixon line uh, between this North and the South. That wasn't the case. Yeah. And a lot of these stats are actually being taken from uh, Daniel Sutherland's This Terrible War book, uh, which is a great kind of overall book about the Civil War. Um, and another thing that you're kind of talking about, similarities between white Northerners and white Southerners, the United States was actually one of the leaders in the world in in the world in terms of literacy, um, I think an average of eighty percent of white Northerners were literate. Average of seventy-two percent white Southerners were literate. Um, and this, you know, being able to read newspapers, spread newspapers, all these things were kind of bringing the country closer together in in economic and in some ways uh, discussion of political issues terms. Uh, the biggest difference that there was at the time was in kind of perception of the country. A lot of these northerners were seeing southerners as kind of lazy, uh, arrogant, uh, you know, not really industrious Americans. Meanwhile, southerners who traveled to like New York City or Chicago uh, saw the northerners as rude. Uh, people who were living a way faster pace of life. But these were perceived differences, not actual differences. Yeah. But still, like you said, if you look back on all these things, typically the historical textbook would say, you know, of course war was inevitable. It paints a picture of these two separate nations. But Sutherland says, you know, no human event is ever inevitable. Exactly. And another thing, uh, Mitch is now quoting from a book he read his, his junior year of college, and he still has the notes from that class written down 
which, come on, my man, who does that? Hey, it's, it's coming handy for a lot of stuff I that guess, I guess, I guess. Uh, I have no idea where my <laughs> junior year of college notes are. Probably threw them away right the second after I finished that class. Yeah. Just, the bell rings and you go out in the hallway and you, you throw them up in exactly. the air. And it's super cool and everybody loved me for it. Yeah. Got <laughs> a cool summer party. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the Vietnam War. Uh, this will be our third little, and our cute little uh, trip tick. That's a cool word for you guys. Trip tick uh, of uh, wars, uh, and another place where it often comes down to the idea of like this inevitability of war. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess one thing to know before that, like like World War One, like World War Two, like the Civil War, like Vietnam. These are probably the four big wars in U.S. history. Uh, America, the American Revolution is probably the fifth. Um, and so they all have hundreds of thousands of books written on them, millions on millions, if not billions of pages, written um, on these wars. And because of that, there's a lot of different uh, historiographical strains, lots of ways that people are writing about the Vietnam War. And one of the big things that people are writing about the Vietnam War, one of the big ways, uh, and it's not so much anymore, but at one point it was very big, this idea that we eventually, like the war, the Vietnam War was inevitable. It had to happen. There was no way the U.S. was not going to get stuck into the war. And this starts particularly uh, with the actions of Eisenhower and then moves up Kennedy and onward. Yeah. Um, and that's just like a bad way, as we talked about earlier, to write about the Vietnam War. There was constant decisions made by people in the U.S. government that like led us closer and closer to danger and to us being stuck in this long, prolonged war, but we always could have gotten out of it. Exactly. So Vietnam was never something that we had to be stuck in for whatever, like 40-odd years, however long it was. It was, it could, at any time, could have been, we, there could have been choices that were made that would have kept us out of World War, of Vietnam, and there were choices that could have taken us completely out of the war after it started. Yeah. Uh, but what a lot of like, historians have been talking about, whenever you're talking about the earlier presidents before you get to the Vietnam presidents, um, is kind of this, this idea that um, you know, Truman and Eisenhower were, were real men making real decisions, and it's, it's really difficult to, to say you know, this was the decision that led in the United States into Vietnam. Exactly. And they certainly wouldn't have said, this is the decision that I made that paved the road that, you know, cursed my successors to be chained to my decisions. Exactly. Uh, and each each president kind of made decisions that kind of piled on to the, the decisions of their predecessors and, and, you know, influenced America's direction to that war. Exactly. And I guess one of the big things about Vietnam, one of the big reasons why we got stuck there for so long is because of Red, Red Scare stuff post-World War II. Um, there was such a huge fear of communists in the State Department that literally every one of the department's Southeast Asian experts got kicked out because they thought they were too close to communism and that they were somehow like being like made into Reds. Um, which is so like, and so we had a little, we had a dearth of knowledge about the area, yeah. And so we were completely handicapped by these neophytes in the State Department positions who had no idea what the hell was going. On. Yeah, which ironically is kind of one step, I mean, probably a few steps up from what Stalin did with all his generals, and who kind of like disagreed with him. Stalin just would send them to the gulags or have them yeah. assassinated, um, because. Uh, 
Uh, meanwhile, we, you know, just fired, just fired. our experts. <laughs> and destroyed who, their family and put them on blacklist. Yeah. So not similar at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, I guess there's the, one of the big strains of Vietnam historiography is, like, kind of that the actions of Dwight Eisenhower um, put all, the, all future presidents in a box. Mm-hmm. That his actions in aiding the French and putting more troops, uh, at this point they were still military advisors, right? Yeah, yeah, my timeline, right? And putting more troops there somehow trapped all future presidents from ever uh, to like to having to go with uh, his actions, and that's just false. I guess it's just a bad way to look at history. Uh, the any of these actions could have been done at any point. Yeah. Um, the idea. There's like this, I guess, if you want to look at it as in the presidents were afraid to lose, uh, that's one way to like how the argument goes is that we had, we were in Vietnam and America had to like prove its power against, you know, the communist world and that's why we couldn't leave. But we had done, we had like not done things in so many other countries that it was like, it was kind of pointless. Like no one else outside of the U.S. writes about the Vietnam War. Yeah. Maybe France, but it's France would it would just be one chapter in a, a larger book about the loss of the French Empire exactly. and the, the attempts to kind of regain yeah. it under De Gaulle. Uh, so it would be part of a much more complex narrative. American histori- histories are typically more focused on the Vietnam War itself, exactly in its entirety. And yeah, so no international scholars really at all talk about the Vietnam War. It's so inconsequential uh, for world history. And yet, in Americans' minds, when reading about it, it's such like a huge point, like culturally, historically, it's a massive, massive point in the United States history. Mm-hmm. When and it's seen as this like the crumbling of post World War II America, like it's the point where we finally like the cynical American was like built, and it's seen as somehow like this had to happen. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's also kind of like a loss of innocence tale, if you will. Um, that's kind of similar to what happened to Britain after World War One, um, and so you're kind of seeing these, seeing these wars where, in in retrospect, people start to wonder, you know, what was it all for? And when there's you know a large body of people saying that the war was pointless, whether it was the Vietnam War or whether it was World War One, when people have lost family members or you know lost loved ones to that war. They get upset that you would say that the war was pointless, but it also changes and shapes how a nation perceives war. And so I think there's some similarities between Britain and a lot of Europe after World War One and the United States after Vietnam. Exactly. And it brings up that why versus how question again. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of writing about why the U.S. had to fight in Vietnam, which just that had to brings inevitability in it. This idea of the domino theory, which we talked about earlier, that if Vietnam fell, then, you know, Laos would fall, and then the rest of Southeast Asia would fall to the communists, and the communists would take over the world. That line of thinking brings this idea of inevitability into Vietnam when it just wasn't there. There's no, like, the domino theory is perfect for political scientists and people in Washington because it's literally not provable. Yeah. Like, and if you wanted to prove it, you'd have to let it happen. And the way it was set up, the consequences would be so dire for letting it happen that you, in no circumstances, could you know put it to like a field test or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, this idea of inevitability is a great, great tool if you want to like you know use it for political gain. But if you're looking at how the world actually is and like 
if you want to be, you know, not a garbage person, then you can't think about inevitability. You can't think about history like that and world events like that. Yeah. These, there were people making constant, constant, oh boy, conscious decisions about what they wanted to do, and then post the failure of the Vietnam War, making them like post rating them as being inevitable, and that's something that had to happen. Exactly. I mean, they they kind of slept walked into it. Exactly. They they were making conscious conscious decisions. But it was always having their mentality and their thought process being shaped by a lot of the intellectual and isms of their day. It may be different isms in the 1950s and 1960s, post-World War One, II. Socialism. Yeah. Fascism. But, and some of them are the exact, exact same, same. Exactly. Uh, isms. But, you know, you, you see these things where people were still making decisions and nothing was inevitable. But a lot of the things that you would typically chalk up to the why column, they shaped the how. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess that's like the, the big takeaway point here, I guess, from history, <laughs> is to wrap it all up. To all my young historians out there, writing their papers. You go. You do it. You do you. But don't fall into the trap of writing about why something happened. Writing about how something happened. Don't. Nothing is inevitable. Yeah. Do that, and you're guaranteed an A. A plus, baby. Just write. Nothing is inevitable. Yeah. Also, you know, it's it's trash to to answer this question because no one really knows how it happened because no one living was there and everyone has a bias. <laughs> um, and just write that. There and is no objective <laughs> truth. Yeah. And just write that, and then you'll be on your way to being a great historian. Exactly. Nothing is inevitable. Sounds like something from an Assassin's Creed game. Yeah. True. But I, my mind is broken, so I think everything sounds like something from an Assassin's Creed game. Oh, that's great. Nothing is inevitable. Oh. Everything is permitted. Shouts to all my Assassin's Creed players out there. That's the real history. Oh, That's something they don't teach you in the history books. Yep. Um, so I guess just to <laughs> give a little wrap up here after our jokes, uh, World War One might not have happened unless for a, it was a series of conscious decisions made by people who didn't know what these decisions were getting them into. Yeah. Um, Vietnam, same thing though. They probably were a little more aware of what might happen, but they had a some. Certain actors in the history of Vietnam had maybe more to gain from Vietnam keeping going on yeah. than they did in World War One. And no one, no one really made any decisions that trapped their successors. Exactly, they were making yeah. this, they were making their decisions, kind of using some of the same policies and mentalities of their predecessors, but they were also kind of shaping it to be their own. Yeah, um, the idea of being like trapped in history is like by other actions is a, it's not a great concept for writing history. Yeah. And finally, just as you know, the European nations on the eve of World War One were not entirely unique and distinct from one another. They weren't that different. Um, the North and the South on the eve of the Civil War were not two different nations before they ever split apart or the South, South rebelled. North and South Vietnam were two different nations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they weren't. They were pretty much the same, though, as uh, they weren't like super. Like different culturally, yeah. Just the forced politics of the nation. Yeah. Well, that's good. I think we're good. Yes. I'm Dylan. I'm Mitch, and this has been the the greatest greatest podcast podcast in history. history.